Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Back about a year ago, I almost interviewed today's Spirit in Action guest, Shang Elizabeth Lore, but alas, that did not happen. The good news is that Sheng and I found some time to sit down together this week to talk about her work on the Social Exchange Project. When Sheng started the project a few years back, she set out to help vulnerable groups reduce loneliness and improve mental health and well-being through creativity and connection workshops. Since then, Sheng has increased the scope of her work, including helping folks produce and share media to reach out to the community. As the first USA-born child in her Hmong family, she has learned to act as a bridge between cultures and to understand the challenges and promises of potentially distressing situations. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. Shang Elizabeth Lore is a bundle of healing energy for this world. Joining us today via Zoom to talk about her work with the Social Exchange Project. Shang, thanks so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for inviting me on. I think this has been a long time coming for us. Yeah, ever since last year, I guess it was April, when I did the interview with Salik and other folks about conversations in color. That's something that I understand you also were a founder of that, though it's on hiatus now. Tell folks what conversations in color is. Conversations in Color was the idea. So I was not the founder of it. It was Ed and Dr. Salika Duxworth Lawton here in Eau Claire. And kind of how I got involved was they actually were on my podcast. And so when, um, after we had wrapped up filming, they had asked if I would like to either be involved in it as a volunteer, maybe eventually take over as one of the resident panelists or even the host. And I got really excited because at that point I was still just producing my show and my platform and wanted to learn a whole lot more about like just what we had going on in the community as well as the production piece of shows. And so I did attend the first episode and that was incredible and remained on. I took a little break myself just because of COVID and other personal things that I was going through. But I I would say maybe I was more of a founding team member, but I was not the actual founder of the show. But I love being a part of that show. And um, it taught me a whole lot about social justice issues, people in our community and important conversations that we had. You say that it helped teach you about a lot of social justice issues. As a Hmong person in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, you're certainly aware of some social injustices, different structures, prejudices, all that kind of things. Would you say you were leaning toward being a social activist from early on in your life? You know, that's such a good question because I identify first now, I wear many hats in the community, but I identify first as an activist. I will say that throughout my entire life, everything that I've enjoyed has always been around people or helping people or conversing with people and interacting with people in some way. 
Growing up, I knew that there were a lot of things that I was not exposed to. I grew up in a Catholic household, a very strict traditional Hmong household, and I really wasn't exposed to a lot. And, you know, I guess we don't need to get into all of that right away. But my parents just were incredibly thoughtful about what we were exposed to. So I often heard and saw racism, but I didn't experience a whole lot of it myself. I just always felt like there was just so much more to the world than what I was able to maybe see myself. I kind of always had this naive lens where I was curious about people, curious about issues, curious about how others lived. And that's really the basis of my platform. So I would say I always cared about issues as I learned about them, like in the political arena, but never really identified as a, an actual activist until I started my platform myself and was exposed to a lot of the injustice. So it's kind of odd maybe even to hear that from somebody who is a woman of color and who's so strong now in my identity. But really, I think it was how I grew up. I just wasn't really exposed to a lot of it. And now really being in it and seeing the reality and not having this like kind of washed out lens of what I thought the world was has really helped propel me to do the work that I'm doing now. So um, I would say I'm I identify as an activist first now, but hadn't really identified that way until a couple of years ago. I think that folks listening across the country may have little idea how a place like Eau Claire, Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin, I think from national point of view is considered to be mostly white, mostly European, yet Hmong are a significant percentage of the population in Eau Claire, which I think has been a blessing for us. What's the percentage wise in the population as a whole around here that Hmong represent? You know, I don't know the actual percentage, to be really honest. I just know that in Eau Claire, we do have a significant amount of Hmong people that live here. Wassa is the same way, and St. Paul, Minneapolis, Twin Cities is the same way. But I will say that, you know, our culture has really shaped the way that our community is thriving. You know, we own a lot of businesses that provides different richness and, you know, art that we make and food that we, you know, make. And, you know, I just think that Eau Claire is such a unique space for us. And I know there's still so much work to be done, which is the work I'm trying to do. But I just know that Eau Claire compared to other cities that I've been a part of has been pretty inclusive to our culture and our race. We certainly had people on the city council, I think, on the county board. Hmong have been well represented in shaping our city to its betterment, I believe. But I assume that the arrival of Hmong in Eau Claire happened somewhere shortly after the Vietnam War closed down, the the American war that took place in Vietnam, because I think the Hmong were known for siding with the Americans over there. I Tell me if my history's wrong. No, your history is right. And you know, I'm not a history buff either. I usually have Dr. Sleeka or somebody else <laughs> go over a lot of the facts. I know the history through the lens of my parents and my grandparents and the stories that they shared with me. It was during the war that our people, because we knew the terrain and we knew the, the landscape, we were recruited by the CIA to help in the war. And in exchange, several of us were able to come to America and start life anew. Some were left behind and, you know, still experienced war and genocide. But my parents met on the refugee camp, actually, and had three of my older siblings on the camp before coming to America. So I'd mentioned this in many conversations before, but I am the first child in my immediate 
immediate family that was born here in America, born in Wausau, Wisconsin, actually. And growing up really between two worlds, it was really challenging for me. And that was part of the, like I had mentioned earlier, lack of exposure to real world. And that was my parents really um, protecting us from the things that they've gone through, wanting to better our lives. But growing up here in Wausau, Wisconsin, predominantly white, I went to Catholic school too. And so that was just a different kind of environment that was um, unique to my upbringing versus maybe other Hmong peers or other Hmong youth that were growing up in America. Those are the experiences that I know is through my own and my parents' experiences. You landed in Wausau, you're in Eau Claire, and for those listening from across the country, that's maybe a two-hour drive, basically, between the two of them. Why is Eau Claire so much better than Wausau? (laughs) Um, You know, this is going on record. I wouldn't say better. I would say equally great, but different. (laughs) You know, I'm currently in Wasa right now, actually. I'm with my family in, in Wasa right now. And one of the things that I realize is that in any city, the culture is so different in general. Like, you know, the way politically they move, the way arts-wise that they move, and the way that the community connects with one another. Each time I'm in Wasa, you know, it feels differently. It, it's still home, but it's not my home. You know, Eau Claire is my home. I'm so proud to be a part of the Eau Claire community. I've immersed myself completely in all different social circles in Eau Claire. And I'm really super proud of that because we have so much in Eau Claire. We house some of the best BIPOC artists in Eau Claire. And we house just some of the greatest people that sit in uh, political seats in Eau Claire. And you know, maybe I'm biased, but I just like love the way that we promote togetherness in Eau Claire. So of course, in any city, there's always so much more work that can be done, you know, in all arenas. But you know, I'm so proud to be living in Eau Claire. And I'm so proud to be a part of the movements that's happening in Eau Claire. So I wouldn't say Eau Claire is better than Wausau, but definitely more my home now than Wausau is. I assume that the presence of the university in Eau Claire, it's one of the sizable university branches that are throughout the state. Eau Claire, I think, has something like 10,000, 11,000 students. And when you consider the city's population is something like 75,000, that means that the university and its student population have a certain effect on the air around us. And I think for our betterment again. Do you connect much with the university? More recently, I've done work with the university when I started my LLC, but I have not done as much, I think, as I would like to. (laughs) But it was the first time I actually stepped foot into the university. My older sisters did attend the university in Eau Claire, but I, I myself have not. I did not go to school at the university here. I went to Stevens Point. So yeah, I, I'm still learning and excited to learn more. Well, let's talk about your LLC. Now, again, you work full-time already as a social worker. I I think that's a... (laughs) Yeah, and then you do this LLC, the whole social exchange project, which is more than a full-time job. So you've got at least two full-time jobs that way and probably four or five other things in your life that make you superhuman. So (laughs) when did you start your LLC? What was the purpose? Tell us a little bit about it. 
And you are right. I am a social worker and I work full time as a social worker and I absolutely love it. But then on top of that, I also, I would say I'm 24 seven doing my business always because my business is me. Like everything I do for my platform, for my business is everything I would, it's where my energy is replenished. So even though there are a whole lot of hours that I put into it, I don't see it like that. I see it like I'm living my best life and I get an income from it. So why not? So I can give you a little bit of background. So I started my pod, it was a podcast first. So it's called the Social Exchange Project. At first, it was a passion project on the side that I wanted to do with a friend and just invite different people onto our platform so that we can elevate their voices, right? And then it became something so much more. So this started in 2019, in December of 2019, right before COVID. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that it was either grad school or something that I, that I can do to give back to the community. <laughs> certainly not relaxing, of course. Yeah, but exactly. But I chose the podcast and I filmed out of a studio and I went to a business class for it. I took it really seriously. I even attended a non-traditional communications course through the university. I mean, it was just something that meant so, so much to me. And I did a whole lot of work just building it. Then it grew into a platform that I felt could really make huge impact in the community. That's kind of the basis. It was just a podcast. We also were the the first to film on camera. We have multiple cameras with three cameras that we shoot with. And we edit it as a video podcast versus just an audio podcast. So I have a lot of pride in that. We would shoot extra things for the show. So it would be, you know, me producing music videos for the show and things like that. So it first started out as a podcast. And then as it grew in popularity, I would get hired to do things like fun things. And I just decided that, you know, this is where I'm realizing that my energy is thriving and I feel good doing this work. And this is like authentically myself. Why not actually make it official and have it be an LLC? Because, you know, it allows me further access to building my capacity and doing more for my vision. My LLC in itself. So again, my vision has not changed. My values have not changed. It is always to elevate marginalized communities in the arts and activism space. So I get that that's like quite a unique intersection of things, but I do it through action. I contribute a lot to the arts and activism ecosystem. I believe in changing culture, changing the way that we see and promote one another. And I do that by creating events. I do that by content creation, influencing change, you know, getting into different social circles, like I have said, just to kind of energize the arts and activism spaces, whether it's political activism, whether it's promoting among artists and their new music, whether it's creating events and bringing in artists from especially Hmong artists from the cities and bringing them to Eau Claire so that our people here feel like they have a venue and a safe space to go to that they can be themselves. Whatever that looks like, that has been something that I've done with my platform. So specific services that I provide is content creation. So again, we shoot music videos, we go and cover events. I produce a lot of community conversations and um, whether they're large or small, it's really dependent on sometimes the co-host. So I've, I also work with nonprofits and other leaders in the community and we'll produce events and things like that together. 
It's always to foster better community and togetherness. Again, I do press and media coverage for events, and I usually get hired by businesses, nonprofit organizations, artists themselves sometimes will want me to kind of just throw together an event for them, or sometimes it's political organizations that will want that. And I'm just like a very huge proponent of social media. I think social media influence people. I think they misunderstand the impact that social media has. It's where a lot of people get their news. This is where a lot of people do a lot of their communication and connection with other people. It's just such a great way to market and promote things you care about and people that deserves to be visible. So I do a lot of that kind of strategic planning with people and how they can become more visible, promote their ideas or their events. And then a lot of project management. (laughs) So I know I'm kind of all over the place and I'm okay with it. I'm very dynamic, but like, you know, if there's a project or problem that needs to be solved, I get involved in those things. So I take on a lot of initiatives. I'll lead a lot of initiatives. One of them is Hmong Fest, our very first tournament, our Hmong tournament and festival being created here by community leaders here in Eau Claire and having it for our Hmong people and having other people come join us from other cities because in our culture, we connect over food and, and music And during the summertime, when people can play sports like soccer and football, and we've had that in Oshkosh, it's been so successful in the cities, it's so successful in Wausau. And we said, why can't we have it? Eau Claire also deserves to have it. Our people deserve to have it. You know, Hmong people deserve to have it. We want to show people how cool Eau Claire is too. And so this is the very first year that we're doing that as well. So again, project management on a lot of those things. And then sometimes I'll do some coaching and consulting for organizations. It just depends on what their needs are too. And a lot of the work that I do is as equity, diversity, inclusion work. So yeah, that was a whole lot, but that is my business and that is me. So I'm very, very blessed to, what is it now, May, to be in this LLC world the last couple months. And I am you know, so proud to say that like last month, I calculated everything and I made like four times the amount of what I wouldn't have normally made at my social work position. And it's just, you know, not everything's about money. For me, it's never been about money. And if you watch any of the other interviews that I've given, I've always said like, oh, I don't care about the money. Money makes things weird. But now I see in this mindset, this kind of new mindset that like dollars and cents is a good metric of your value and worth and people appreciating what you're doing. And it helps you become not only just sustainable, but it it builds your capacity to do more of the work that you want to do. And so, yeah, I'm just so, I'm just so proud of how far I've come. So yeah, that was kind of a self pat on the back there for me there, but (laughs) that's essentially my business. That's a whole lot, but you know, it's just who I am as a person too. I'd be happy to reach out and pat you on the back too. (laughs) It's quite a lot of good work that you've been doing. I want to drill down on a couple portions of that, but I first want to remind folks we are speaking with Shang Elizabeth Lohr. She is the founder of the Social Exchange Project, and we should be clear that that exchange is the letter X, not the EX prefix that usually happens with that. And one of the reasons I want to make sure that people know the difference between Shang Elizabeth Lohr and Social Exchange Project and the thing called the Social Exchange Project, which is in Australia, 
is quite different. There's a website out there, the Social EX Change Project that's in Australia that is not the same one here. So if you want to find Shang and the project, you want to come via Facebook and the Social Exchange Project. I've got the link on northernspiritradio.org, and that's why she's here today for Spirit in Action. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, where you can comment on this. You can listen to the previous interview I did that was around the Conversations in Color, which she's part of, also on our site. We'll have that linked. And we love it when we get your comments because we love two-way communication. So please, comment when you visit. You can donate. That's how you support this media, the Northern Spirit Radio, which is syndicated across the country, somewhere between 35 and 45 stations nationwide. I figure that there's Hmong people all over the country but maybe they just like cold climbs, and so they came to Wausau and the Twin Cities in Eau Claire. Is this unusual? Is this just one small drop in the bucket? How is the Hmong population distributed in the United States? You know, we're everywhere. And that's what's so beautiful about our culture is sometimes, like, you don't think that there's Hmong people in a city, and then you run into them. And it's so incredibly it's it's like when you run into a Hmong person like I was in New York right and I did not think there were any Hmong people in New York and finding out that there are Hmong people there I felt like immediately like home you know that person understands my past knows my culture knows the types of food I like it just felt like home we are all over but you know obviously we're concentrated in like Fresno California and beyond um, Fresno but you know in California um, North Carolina Wisconsin certainly Minnesota but then also Australia and France and it's you know globally we're all over my cousin they all live in Canada so we are all over and we all it's just it's the coolest thing about who we are as people is that we have never had our own country. We've never had a place where we can say this is where Hmong people originated from. And what we have done is as we've moved along and, you know, lived in in different places, we've adapted to the culture around us, whether it is applying it to our food or our language or the way that we dress and the way that we connect culturally with other people. We are some of the most resilient people ever. And I am just so proud to be Hmong. And the more I'm learning about my culture, And the more I'm learning about like our history and through the stories that my parents are sharing with me, I am just more than ever so proud to be Hmong because I never had this pride before. And I'll be honest about that. I always felt like growing up, I was never Hmong enough. I was never American or white enough. And so as a child, I thought I had to choose in order to survive. I thought, okay, maybe I should be more white. I should be more Americanized. And that was part of the, I think, guilt that I still carry with me and part of the grief that I have because, you know, I grieve a lot of the moments that I wish I could have had as a Hmong person or a Hmong child growing up and I didn't have them. You know, those are just things that I'm still working through now, spiritually and emotionally. But overall, I am in the space where I'm the most proud to be Hmong because of what we've been able to overcome and accomplish. You know, that's why to me, social justice work is so important. That's why to me, doing the work internally and understanding our history and historical traumas that come with our people is so important to me. And yeah, we're all over the place. We are a little bit of everything and we're just some of the best people. (laughs) 
<laughs> that that I know. <laughs> and certainly I've got friends here locally. One of the things that surprises me, though, is growing up in seventh grade to 10th grade, I took French class and Spanish was an option in my school. That was well before the Hmong migration into the States. So it's not unusual at that point. But I'm not aware of Hmong being taught in any school now. So just for myself, when I go to the farmer's market, which is so rich in the wonderful produce that so many Hmong farmers create here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I wanted to at least be a little bit respectful, at least make a little bit of effort to reach out. So I learned at least to say, watch out. And I learned to say... Oh, you said that really well, by the way. Oh, thank you. Who knows? <laughs> Thanks. And when I'm leaving, I say Shinji Dua or Shinji Kwa. Yeah. And I don't know which Hmong that is. Shinji Dua, I understand, is the predominant Hmong tribes around here. But anyway, just those little things, which, you know, when I go to France, I want to be able to say merci. You know, when I go to the Netherlands, I want to say donk you well, and on and on. But I don't know how many people, European people here, know any Hmong locally. Is that there must be the Hmong linguists amongst the Europeans here? Yeah, my sister's actually, her background is in linguistics. So she's currently in uh, Korea right now teaching English, but she knows a couple languages. My dad knows uh, four or five languages and I know three. <laughs> I, I should say I'm, I'm very fluent in two, but I know Spanish a little bit. I love hearing that you're, you've been wanting just to learn some common phrases because that like those few words that you learn in our culture bonds us with you, especially our elders who do a lot of the agriculture and sell food at the farmer's market. That is everything to us. So even just a couple words in our language, like that is humanity and connectedness. So like, thank you for that. And yes, there's two different kind of dialects. I'm Hmong um, white. So Shinji uh, Dua is how you would say it in white. The way you said it to Shinji Kuo, like that is green. So I'm not green, but my friend is green and, and she's taught me a little bit too. So different dialects there. And you're right about that. As far as the Hmong language being taught, that has been something, I don't know if you followed in Eau Claire, but it's something that we fought for, for a very, very long time, not just for our history to be taught in schools, but our language to be taught to anyone, but certainly our own Hmong youth, right? So the Eau Claire area school district does have a Hmong language course at the um, high school. That curriculum was created out of Minneapolis. So that was huge for us. I, I would say that we're probably the only county that teaches the Hmong language formally in the school system. So this past year, actually, they were trying to merge the Hmong language course into a Hmong social studies class. We fought that. The decision to do that was reversed within a week um, because it's so important that we have our youth learning, formally learning our language because our language is a dying language. And yeah, it's it's just very important. So we do have Hmong linguists. I um, know that they are based out of Minneapolis. There may be a few in California, but the curriculum that we borrowed from and learned a lot from, the blueprints anyway, was based out of Minneapolis. So we do have a few. As far as actual courses that like the general public can take, I believe that the Hmong Mutual Assistance Association has courses. I think right now their course is only for grade school, but before they did have a few that was for the general public. I know in Wausau, they had it for the general public just to kind of learn some basic Hmong, like Hmong 101. 
But yeah, our language is, I would say, kind of a dying language at the moment. And so we're really hoping to continue on with teaching our youth our language and our written language too, which is really, really new. We've never had a written language until just several decades ago. So we want to maintain all of that and keep all of that going. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Social Exchange Project. And again, folks, that's exchange just with an X at the beginning, not an EX. I've got the link to Shang Elizabeth Lohr's Facebook page for the Social Exchange Project on northernspiritradio.org. By the way, you can also find the stations nationwide where we're carried. And I would really urge you to support your local community radio station. Alternative news, alternative connection, and alternative sources of connection like Shang's Social Experiment podcast, are so essential because mainstream one-size-fits-all can be replicated everywhere will not give you the important hues and colors of our cultures, of our richness, of our people. So please remember to support your local community radio station and also support Shang and the Social Exchange Project podcast. Now, a couple of things you mentioned in your initial description of what the Social Exchange Project does. You mentioned Eau Claire Mungfest, which is coming up on June 17th and 18th here in Eau Claire. You mentioned there's a tournament there. What kind of tournament? So what I love about just Hmong tournaments and festivals in general is just the large amounts of people that come in and meet one another. It's actually kind of like a social networking type of thing too, but the type of tournaments that we are holding here specifically. So this will be the Eau Claire Soccer Park, June 17th and 18th. It's a two-day event. The type of sports that, well, we have a whole bunch of stuff, but the sports that we have will be men's and women's soccer, um, with senior soccer, flag football, so both men and women's flag football. We have volleyball, again, men and women. And the reason why I say men and women, it's very important because sometimes tournaments don't include women and we wanted to make sure it was incredibly inclusive. So we have, again, soccer, flag football, and volleyball. We were hoping to add more sports tournaments and competitions, like Katao is one, which is a traditional like sport in our culture. And then we also were hoping to have cornhole, but you know, we're new and we're, you know, we're really hoping to have more quality than quantity this year. And we wanted to be incredibly successful. So we wanted to start out humbly, right? But then we also have like dance competitions. So during the day, on both days, we're going to be doing the dance competition. And it's typically traditional Hmong dance and their dance team. So we've organized dance teams that will compete with one another and it'll all be prizes. There's tiers with that as well. And then we also have a singing competition. So the singing competition, we've seen it at so many different places. So again, none of this is like new or unique. This is a lot of borrowed things that has we wanted to stay authentic to what we've always had. So it's not new to the way we set up our tournaments. It's just new to Eau Claire. So our singing competition will also be both days, Saturday and Sunday. And then the part that I'm in charge of, which is like my bread and butter, my favorite thing to do with my platform is the night festival. So our night festival will have a musical lineup, all Hmong artists and our, I I won't, I can't say who they are yet. We're going to be announcing it this weekend, but our main performer headliner is a Hmong woman, which was intentional for me because 
I believe, you know, in our culture, it's still patriarchal. We still have a lot of gender roles that we're having to still kind of work through. <laughs> Let's say that. And our headliner, I wanted to be incredibly intentional that it was not a male, um, not that I suppress men, but I was just incredibly important that I'm elevating our Hmong women. So it is a Hmong woman and she is incredibly diverse in how she creates her art and her music as well. So yeah, so this, the night festival is what I'm a part of. Super excited about that too. Sounds wonderful. I'm not positive I'm going to be able to attend since I'll be leaving town for a month just a day or two later. And so I'm going to have too many things I'm going to be juggling at the same time. But it's still possible. But you know what? This is the cool thing. This is our first year. We're really hoping to have it every single year. And, you know, alongside with all the things that I just mentioned, we're going to have lots of food vendors too. And then what we also are going to have is um, booths for merchandise selling. So yeah, if, if you can't make it out this year, year, you know, next year, we're going to continue it. I may or may not be a part of it next year. But it was just an idea that I had a lot of us had this vision of bringing this to a clear. And I brought it to city council, Larry, actually, who wasn't city council yet at the moment. And I met him at a political event last year for Congress, and he was running to be city council. And I told him this idea. And he's like, we need to do this because he's actually very involved in the Hmong soccer or just soccer in general, but the Hmong community because of soccer. He brought it to the right partners. He brought it to the right people. And here we are. So I give a lot of credit to Larry and Boga City Council. And then Visit Eau Claire, our partner, Hmong Mutual Assistance Association, they've done the bulk of the work, actually. And so I just wanted to throw that out there, too, that this has been a shared vision of everyone. But to have it come now to fruition is exciting. So can't make it this year. Next year, we're going to have it again, too. If you reassure me that there's going to be pho there, my <laughs> wife's favorite soup. Now, she just is crazy over it. I'm probably going to Thai orchid tonight, and I'll be bringing homes uh, of nice order of pho, chicken pho, because it's such her favorite right now. So is that going to be there or not? And if it's not going to be there, I'm going to have to just say, sorry, I can't make it. You know, I can almost guarantee that there's going to be pho, but, you know, normally our tournament food is like, you know, sticky rice, like kind of easier, like finger foods, but it'll be sticky rice, mong sausage. A lot of it is going to be grilled pork, like pork belly and chicken, you know, but it depends on our vendors too. So, you know, we're still looking for vendors at the moment. We've got a couple secured, but yeah, I'm almost, I can almost guarantee there's probably going to be pho because pho is <laughs> delicious. Dance is something that particularly interests me. I think almost uh, probably 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I got together with Joe B, who is so known for his dance the, that he that he could do around here. And I, I went over to his house and had him teach me some because I do international folk dance. And what kind of dance are, are Hmong children here frequently learning dances as they're growing up or is it all American stuff? I know when you get reach high school, it's probably harder to shy from the middle of society, right? The, the predominance of society. But uh, young girls, don't they always learn? And young boys, do they always learn Hmong dance? No. And that's the thing is, you know, we do have organized dance groups and troops. But like my niece, for instance, she's biracial and she's learning like more of the jazz and learning more of like the types of dances that you would see in the larger community. So we are wanting to promote more of our traditional dance because we don't 
you know, have that as much. And and we want to keep that. The other kind of thing that I want to mention is there are more dance groups or younger children learning hip hop dance, which is, I would say, newer to our community. So, you know, Cypher Side Dance School in Minneapolis, owned by Lou Finisher, and he teaches children hip hop dance. And that is really cool because that's absolutely non-traditional to our community, but it's now becoming more and more of our culture. You know, we've got, you know, Aiden, who has danced with the likes of Justin Bieber and has been on Ellen. And he started as a as a kid and he's represented us so well in the dance community, too. So we're again, we're all over the place. And that's, again, how much I love our Hmong people, because we are everything. You know, we represent the queer community. We represent all sides of arts. We represent all different levels of political influences. It's just so cool to see and and learn more and more about others, like their interests and how they've built their own platforms and built their own pathways and have evolved a lot too from what we would quote unquote believe to be traditional. When my program started out, Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul were both featured on WHYS Radio. That's where I started. And one of the wonderful things about that was that 7 o'clock each night, there was the Hmong Hour on WHYS. And it's still there four nights a week, I see, on their schedule. And so have the Hmong been given access to public media? Do they get out there? I mean, when you started the Social Exchange Project, you were featured in a news article in the Leader Telegram local newspaper here. They at least reported that that was happening. Have the Hmong had an easy Easy access or has it been struggling against the culture to get in? You know, that's such a good question, too, because that's something that I'm really, really examining myself. And I will say my dad has been on public radio and he's he did. I grew up going to the local radio station while he records. And a lot of the stuff he did was religious in nature. But, you know, as far as like mainstream exposure, you know, I think we're still working on that. But we also, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for everyone. I personally don't aim for mainstream. I aim for my own table. You know, I build my own table. I would love to have a seat at their table, but I want my own table, you know. And for me to be able to be featured locally and just more widely on a, like in a more, I don't know, formal sense, whether it's a newspaper article, whether it's, uh, you know, on volume one, whether it's just being on another person's podcast or mentioned here or a tag there. It's so incredibly validating for me. But for me also at the same time, I'm just doing what I love doing. And I'm trying to think of innovative, more visionary type of ways to connect with others and then connect them to one another. Like that is my one of my biggest missions in life is really to do that. And again, it goes back to why I'm in so many different social groups, because the equity work that I do needs to apply to my immediate life. And if it doesn't, how do I expect the community to apply it to theirs? So I'm always learning more about other cultures. I'm always learning more about my culture. I'm learning more about just different schools of thought. (laughs) I consider myself a forever student. So just kind of learning more. And as I learn, I'm trying to share information and share resources. And that's part of all the different things that I'm doing, the Social Exchange Network. That's a Facebook group that I started. And I just share everybody's work together there. And I have the most eclectic followers, which is, this is intentional. I have the most eclectic, most diverse, most unique followers in that group. 
and they get to learn about one another. You know, a lot of the work that they're doing is very parallel, but they don't often get the opportunity to connect with one another. And so that's really one of my mission. And then, you know, of course, I've got the social exchange activists group and then the social exchange creatives group. And it's it's kind of the same thing. So I mean, I could speak about those two groups too. As my platform kind of grew, I thought, okay, how do I want, you know, in arts and activism, how do I want to kind of organize these two areas of focus? Although they are interchangeable too, in some ways, you know, you can't really do activism without the arts and, and sometimes arts does promote activist work. And so I started the social exchange creative. So that's kind of how I launched my LLC as well. And it was really a group of people creatives of all backgrounds that are either content creators or influencers, maybe they're doing music, they're, you know, producing, and they're made up of different people with different backgrounds. And each of them have such unique resources that they know of, or such a unique talent that they have, that they can, it's essentially co-op where they can share with each other. And then I promote them. And then, you know, we all work together to build our creative capacity in our city. And then it's kind of the same thing with the activist group, you know, the activist group that I started here in Eau Claire, they're what I call like, Movers and shakers. So people who are incredibly invested in our community, whether it is through city council, whether it is through, you know, I do have other artists on there too, that they make music about what it feels like to be in the LGBTQ community. Every month I co-host with one of the activist leaders. It is a lead with leaders and grow with one another. And we just create a very safe space to connect with each other, to learn about one another, and to cultivate just a place that is equal parts personal, professional, and passion. And every event is unique because every leader, every co-host is so unique. And so, you know, that has been successful and just so much fun too. And so lots of stuff I'm doing, (laughs) but fun stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and exhausting, but you don't sound exhausted. I'm not. You know, I, I get tired. You know, I'm, I'm I'm human. I get tired, but I think if you're doing what you're meant to do, it's, again, I go where my energy is. It replenishes your energy, you know, your purpose. If this is what you're meant to do, you feel it in your soul and you do it every day. It's a 24-7 thing, you know, and you dream about it. Like I dream about it. And you wake up with more ideas and more connections that you can make, more collaboration that you can be a part of. And that is that is my life. And so it's just, again, I'm always around. I'm centered around people. I'm an extrovert. I love being around people, helping people. Everything I do is based off of, of how I can better my community and the people who live there. So it sounds exhausting to maybe somebody else, but to me, it's not exhausting to me. It is beautiful life and I'm lucky that I get to do it. Again, full-time work as a social worker, you're full-time and beyond as the social exchange project. I saw a video of you talking. You confess to the group that you're an addict, an addict to helping people. And, you know, codependence can be a problem. Do you think you should see a social worker to work on your codependence? (laughs) You know what? I will tell you, I am so huge on internal work. So I have a therapist, I have a life coach, I have two different life coaches. And it is really huge. How can you help others if you are not helping yourself first and foremost, right? So codependency to me, you know, that really played a big part in why I in my opinion, why my marriage didn't work was not only because we grew apart, and we wanted different things. But it was because I felt that I was so invested in making somebody else the primary person. And I have learned 
learned so much that I can't do that anymore. And that means the work that I do too. Like I need to take care of myself. I need to love myself first. And I didn't even know how to do that. I had to learn how to nurture myself and care for myself first. So fill my own cup before I go and fill other people's cup. I've definitely learned to do that a lot more. Still working on a lot of things. I'm a project myself. So, you know, I'm certainly not sitting here saying like I'm a whole and healed person, right? I'm still healing. I'm still figuring things out. But codependency is a real thing. I didn't even realize that there was a term for it. It was just something that I felt. And I thought I was like the only person going through it. After I made it, so what what video you're referring to, just so the listeners know, I had spoken at a writer's guild and shared an original piece about my codependency, my addiction, which was love addiction and loving my partner so much that I, I started to prioritize his needs over mine. And learning through that experience that addiction is still addiction. Like you, you know, he had a lot of addictive issues too. And really realizing that you need to have a balance and you need to be able to like work through your own demons. So that video, after I released it publicly, I thought a lot, like I didn't know if I wanted to put it out there because it is such a vulnerable thing. But in order to be real and authentic, I'm in a place where I can put that out there because I want to help other people too. After that went public, I had so many people in my inbox. Like I had a woman, um, home woman who messaged me and said, you know, I'm, I'm going through the same thing that you went through. You know, my partner is an alcoholic or has, you know, issues with alcoholism. And I have always put his needs first because I, I think like I'm trying to save his life, but it's, it's been taking away from me so much that I, I think I'm at a point where I needed to reassess and reevaluate how I wanted to participate in my own life. And she said that video helped her so much that she actually was going to file for divorce. And not that I want to like promote divorce, but I want to promote healthy relationships. I want to promote like healthy sense of selves. And, and if this is a message that I can put out there as I'm still healing and learning and it helps other people, then again, I'm doing my mission of cultivating kindness and cultivating like self kindness and love. So thank you for bringing that up because it was a journey for me. And that's the reason why I took a break from conversations in color and other projects that I was working on at the time, including my own platform. So I could do some inner healing, inner work, learn a lot about my culture, the traumas that is, lives in our DNA that I carried into my relationship, the traumas that my parents have experienced and, and endured that they pass along to us and so on and so forth. So it was some deep, deep inner work that I had to do with lots of professionals and lots of friends and loved ones. And I'm in a very good place and will continue to always work on myself too as I move along and, you know, level up and evolve. Well, if folks come by org and go to Shang Elizabeth Lohr's Facebook page, The Social Exchange Project, and again, that's exchange with just the letter X, not an EX, Social Exchange Project, you'll find a lot more activities going on. I saw one that was just for yesterday, I believe. It was about some activism. There's a teacher in the Wausau area, and you you got out and were talking that up. Now, was that you specifically, or is that other folks over in Wausau? Yeah, that's why I'm in Wausau, actually. So I am one of the, I guess we're referring to ourselves as co-captains 
but it's myself, Mary Tao. She's former city council, former school board, and then the aunt of the child victim in this specific case that we are involved with. So it is me. It you know, there's a whole lot of information out there right now. It has gone viral. It's national news. I actually just did an interview with NPR, NBC News, and and beyond because it has become such a big issue. Now people are like, well, this is just Wasa, Wisconsin issue. It is not. This is racism, homophobia, hatred, things that we see on a daily basis that our children and our youth are being exposed to. And it's absolutely zero tolerance. Not okay. Especially from a teacher who's supposed to be inspiring and helping. There's a lot of information out there. We do have a petition on change.org that has garnered, I think at this point, I checked it this morning, was well over 3,000 signatures since we launched it a few days ago. And there's a lot of information about violations, specific violations that has been filed formally through the school. On top of that, we also have the superintendent's statements. He's written two statements really alluding to the fact that there was harm and there was admission of things that were said and done that were inappropriate, even though they stated that it wasn't to a level of discrimination. But yeah, we're battling it right now. So this is part of the activism work that I do with my platform. I built a platform. I intend to use it to amplify people who are typically and historically been marginalized and help them with getting them connected to legal supports, which is what I've done, helping them get connected to organizations that do this type of work, which is what we've done, and to organize in a a very intentional manner. You know, we all got t-shirts, we had spreadsheets of what we're going to be doing. So we are incredibly organized and strategic and how we're moving about this. Our accountability demands and requests for reparation was publicized on May 3rd. And we are very, very loud and very, very centered in what we're asking for. And it is just even the bare minimum. Like we're looking for justice and peace for this family that has been harmed. And we are also looking for institutional and systemic ways to prevent harm. I'm all about harm reduction. I'm huge on accountability and we have not had that. And so that's why I'm here in Wausau was because we did gather peacefully before the school board meeting. Nearly 30 of us spoke, had public comment and made the news and spreading our mission and ensuring that this will never, ever happen again. As we've grown, more students and more families, former students, have been coming forward. Um, we even had family members of this individual come forward. So there's a whole lot there. I can't speak more to it than that. But I can say that we are looking for change on a a significant scale. And yeah, this is definitely not over yet, but it is out there if you're interested in knowing more about our fight and wanting to get involved and learn more about facts and things that's occurring. It is out on my social exchange uh, platform on both the Facebook and Instagram, I think. And I urge that even if you have not experienced the type of discrimination that that our marginalized communities have experienced. I want you just to at least have empathy and understand that if you've not gone through it and you've not experienced it, that if you can at least be an ally and and help us, you know, move the needle. I hope it's more than just moving the needle, but moving our communities forward into more equality and equitable places. I hope that we can have more people out there, at least at at this point, sign that petition and learn more about just the oppression that we've experienced that we can't have our youth be exposed to anymore.
I think I benefited from the two years I was in the U.S. Peace Corps in Togo, West Africa. One of the things I witnessed there, and I, I have a feling this contributes to the whole experience of the Hmong people. And again, people who don't know, the Hmong folks who migrated here were generally from northern Thailand, Laos, that area, roughly. It's a wide swath across there, including in China. And so they were already a minority in the areas where they lived, and they came here and were even a tiny minority, I believe. So they've had to struggle for a long time and had to learn to be strong and assertive. The pictures that I saw on your Facebook page have almost all been females among women. You've already commented a bit about sexual roles in Hmong tradition and the limitations that Europeans also have carried, but maybe have been working on for a few more decades. <laughs> I don't know. But is most of the population, the activism in the social exchange project, is that female-centric? Because you're such an inspiring female, maybe. Yeah, you know, I can't speak to the numbers, but I will say, at least in my circles of social activism, it has been primarily women-led. And we are out here doing a lot of work because we, again, when we're looking at intersectionality, our identities, a lot of it has been through oppression that we found our voice. Within our own culture, it's still something that we're working through and knowing how to speak up for ourselves and for one another. So a lot of these social justice groups that I'm in or social initiatives that I'm a part of, they are a lot women-led or women-heavy. Even in social work, it's women-heavy. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I can't speak intelligently about why that is or what that looks like, but we do have men on board that have helped. And we do have, like, our EDI coordinator here for the school district is male, Dang Yang, and he's incredible. And he's he's been a huge advocate for a lot of the things that us women are pushing for towards too. And so, you know, I can't speak without really knowing the studies and things like that of what that looks like. But I will say, yeah, a lot of it is Hmong women led. And a lot of the women that showed up, even if we we're talking about yesterday, they are CEOs, they are nonprofit leaders, they are community activists, they are former school board members and city council members. A lot of these women are accomplished and we had to fight really, really hard for our space. And, you know, just me, just speaking as a Hmong woman, the reason why I started the Social Exchange Women, right? It's a newer spinoff live podcast of mine. We only focus on women because we deserve to have that space. We deserve to have that visibility. But also we're doing such amazing things that's so progressive and so beyond what our traditional roles was told to us to be. And to be able to break through barriers, it's really incredibly motivating for me and inspiring for me. We help each other. You know, I if I'm doing something that they think is cool, they want to know more about it. And I'm always that person, like I'm meeting tomorrow with somebody who wants to learn more. I'm giving them all this free advice, all this free stuff that I know. And we exchange information with one another. We're building capacity. That's what I'm all about is helping each other. It's community, it's networking. It's building ourselves so that we can eventually, you know, give back to our youth and that they have a better life. That's what our parents did. They fought through war so that they can give us a better life. So we don't have to go through that. So if they can go through a war, we can show up at a school boardroom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at um, least, yeah, at least, <laughs> right. That, that's the truth. And that's why when people do say like, are you tired? Are you exhausted? You're doing too much. 
I don't pay attention to that because to me, this is my life and I have a legacy I want to leave behind. I don't have kids of my own right now, but I have nieces and nephews and I will do everything that I can to ensure that our community has equitable means and opportunities for them and that they will have less, if if hopefully none, no racist, no hatred, none of those things that's going to suppress them. And that's why I do the work that I do too, is because it's important. We always, as people, we want better for the youth and the future generations. And, and that's what I'm, I'm aiming for with my platform. And folks, you heard it straight from her mouth. Shang Elizabeth Lore, she is, as it says on her webpage and, and on her Facebook page, she is an activist. She's creative. She's a podcaster, a producer, an entrepreneur. And the Social Exchange Project is a company, a platform, and podcast. You can access that. We have the link on northernspiritradio.org. So you can track her down, find all the good ways that you can share culture, learn from, be part of the activism. Just listen to the podcast. You'll be richer for it. Thanks so much for joining me for Spirit and Action, Chang. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a good conversation. Again, a long time coming, and I'm just so happy that we finally got to sit down and talk. So thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for the space. I'm grateful. Again, the links are on nordenspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on nordenspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh